It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Welcome to the program. Great to have Amino Hassan sitting in. I believe for the next couple weeks. I mean, if I'm not mistaken. Fingers crossed. I hope so. <laughs> it's always great uh, to have you on Forward Progress. Uh, for the basketball heads around, they know that Amin and I are together uh, most Sundays. Uh, travel per minute. Uh, on 10 to 1 Eastern. Come on now on NBA Insiders. Uh, feel free to join us throughout the offseason and when the orange leather's back in the air. Uh, coming in late summer, early fall. Uh, today, uh, we have the pleasure of visiting with Shamari Brown. That's coming up in a little bit. Uh, brand new uh, senior associate athletic director for Iowa State, oversees uh, so many things as it pertains to health and student, um, I should say health and wellness for the student athletes, uh, as well as uh, Title IX, as well as diversity and inclusion. I hope my man has a big staff. I mean, he needs a, he needs a crew in this new gig coming out of uh, work for compliance and wellness for student athletes out of the ACC. We'll talk to him about that fantastic program that uh, so many uh, student athletes participated in. We talked about last month uh, heading to Alabama and really going through the journey of uh, equal justice and equality for black folks in America. Uh, a little bit later in the program, we will get into a story uh, that uh, it, just, it requires our attention. Um, Kel Gundy, who's been a part of uh, the Oklahoma Sooners football program for half of his life, will no longer be there. We'll tell you why. Uh, but let's start off with elements of this Miami Dolphins story, I mean, uh, that mm. continue to unravel. As we know full well, everything that resonated from uh, the firing of Brian Flores uh, into the investigation the NFL had into many of Coach Flores' claims of mm -hmm. in inappropriate activity as pertains to tampering, uh, all that has rolled out and has been adjudicated. Uh, but there was a story that rolled out uh, – really focusing on kind of the imbalanced duality of the, the team, the, the owner of the team, Stephen Ross, mm -hmm. uh, it, obviously back in February of 2019, he hires Brian Flores and mm -hmm. it, it's still like it or not a celebration when a black man is hired as a head coach in the national football league or a manager in major league baseball. And obviously diversity continues to be a point of interest for the national hockey league. Uh, but when that hire was made, uh, it was a part of an entire uh, diversity initiative that was led by Stephen Ross himself. Um, and then he sued for discrimination. And so trying to draw those lines uh, and connect those lines, um, and even the story adding a third rail in all of this, being a Trump supporter, uh, all is all it, it's it, it's an awakening and a challenge for not just Dolphins fans, but all of us when we're talking about doing and saying and being 
having all those dots connect across the board. Yeah, and I think it's important to realize that you can do a couple of some we'll call good deeds or 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 hires or decisions that would appear to lean in the direction of diversity of inclusion of a a sort of kind of leveling of the playing field but all that can be very outdone if or undone excuse me if you, if you change your mind later because something shinier brighter uh, comes along and i think that's that's the kind of the story of systemic racism is it feels like at times that the only way to get people to do it is if they're incentivized to do it. Mm-hmm. And if there is no incentive or the moment a different incentive structure comes out, any commitment to that flies out the window. So for Stephen Ross, who took control of the Dolphins shortly before the Jonathan Martin, Richie Incognito scandal broke, um, came in, hired Brian Flores, hired several other high-profile people of color. Yeah, let's run through it real quick. Uh, I mean, yeah. because it's head coach, assistant mm-hmm. head coach, defensive coordinator, general manager, mm-hmm. assistant general manager, and three black senior vice presidents on the business side. I mean, this is right. unprecedented. That's a great track record. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the joke was the Dolphins were Wakanda. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> people were making that – that connection, but to say that it wasn't historic would be disingenuous. It was right. exactly that. Yeah. Right. Um, and yet all of that diversity kind of becomes quite meaningless if the idea is A, uh you're asking your coaches to do things that are not only detrimental to their own personal record and their own personal kind of reputation but also fairly unprecedented in the nfl uh second of all uh you fire a coach who has pretty much the best track one of the best track records in organization last 15 years 20 years And when comped against other coaches of his experience and his age in their uh, stops, guys like Kyle Shanahan, guys like um, Cliff Kingsbury, Mm -hmm. not only is it comparable, he's outperformed those guys. And so that's the other part. And that's the part that, you know, when we talk about racial inequality in hiring and firing practices, Jax. That's the part that I think we in the NBA are a lot more familiar with now because I think we've gotten past black guys can't get head jobs in the NBA. Hiring. I I believe our last cycle, it was all African-American. Yeah. And we're, we're, if we're not at 50% right now, we're damn near. Um, the hiring part, we've overcome that hurdle. But where it rears its head in basketball is the concept that a black head coach has, in in um, comparison, a shorter leash, meaning things don't go right. That axe comes a lot quicker for a black head coach than it does 
a white head coach. And uh, that's not my opinion. There are studies and numbers that prove this point. In the NFL, because they're still overcoming the that first hurdle of like, well, how many black head coaches do we have? That second one almost seems seems like a first world problem to them, right? right. <laughs> so, in the case of Brian Flores, he's a vic- a very real victim of that second one. But they're so enamored by the first one, they say, "Well, clearly it can't be racism." They hired him, and that's the difference, Jax. That's where. They are confused by the duality because in their mind, the first hurdle was the only hurdle and they haven't progressed to a level of understanding there's levels to this. The next layer of it is this isn't just a Dolphins issue and it it really poked its head as a collective NFL issue when the Giants and Broncos quickly interviewed Flores Mm -hmm. for head coaching jobs and didn't hire him. And then the back channel comes. And I think you were on the program around that time when Belichick gets the wrong Brian and congratulates Flores for the job uh, when he wasn't the one that had it. And this is all before the news is out. Right. Right. This is no, no, Jax. It's not before the news is out. If it were before the news is out. All right, man, it gets up. It's before Brian Flores interview. (laughs) Take it even further. That's and and again, therein lies the rub. It's not that Brian Flores didn't get hired by the Giants or the or the Broncos or any other team. It's the fact that the the if you will, the final score of the game was released before the team even took the field. Right. Hey, I, I'm a competitor. I'll go out there, me head-to-head against this guy. I lose. I lose. Go back, try to be better next time. Can I sit around and think, man, it was rigged against me? Sure. But that's not racism, and that's not racial discrimination, and that's not grounds for a lawsuit. That's a suspicion based on systemic racism, based on conditions in this country. But it's not a smoking gun. But when a guy texts you, congratulations, I heard you got the job, and says, oops, wrong Brian, and I haven't interviewed yet. There's the problem. And the fact that the guy who sent that text doesn't work for that organization and is not a casual bystander. He's the head coach of another team and quite possibly the greatest head coach of all time. So, You put those puzzle pieces together, that sounds damn near like collusion, if not, again, an outright system designed to be prejudiced against people of color. And that's what Brian Flores' whole thing was. And you you put that in the context of what happened to him in Miami and against the backdrop of what we already know as people of color in this country. and, And you're damn right you got an issue. So someone would say to us, but but I mean, Jason, these these actions did happen. These people were chosen on the merit of their skill set. They were put in place. Uh, Ross's um, what's the program he has? Rise, uh, the Rise. Ross Initiative in Sports for Equality. He put millions of dollars into that. How could he be in the position he finds himself in now 
being seen as a cheater within his own sport on top of uh, being at least connected to what is perceived as racial imbalance and discrimination uh, in hiring practices of the game. Because this isn't a comic book movie. Hmm. This isn't a cartoon. He's bad. He's good. The good guy always does the good thing. The bad guy always does the bad thing. Life is complicated. Sometimes bad people do good things. Sometimes good people do bad things. Sometimes they do things unwittingly. Sometimes they're making conscious decisions, sacrifices, if you will. Say, hey, I know this is kind of screwed up, but I don't feel a level of guilt or shame in doing this to this person. Would they feel the same if it were someone else? Maybe, maybe not. But the reality is there are complexities all around us. And we got to get out of the, the mode of kind of just believing everything is one way for a certain person. Um, I don't know if Stephen Ross is racist, but I do know that racism colors every day of our lives in America. Right. And I do know that people can make decisions that are racially motivated or racially charged or even racially influenced that may not uh, jive with who they see themselves in the mirror. It's like not, I'm pretty sure Stephen Ross doesn't look in the mirror and see like a Klansman hoodie on his head, right? He doesn't think of himself like that. He says to himself, I put millions of dollars in this program. I, I, Devoted, by, you know, I, you know, I, I've committed to um, r- racial equality, racial bringing racial balance within this uh, in our sport and, and across sports. And yet, when it came time to screw someone over, he screwed over the black guy, the black guy who did a good job. That's the other part that's kind of insane. Considering where the team had been for the past 15 years, predating Stephen Ross's ownership, even, and considering what he was able to accomplish, I'm not, they weren't on the verge of winning the Super Bowl. Come, but come on, guys, if you sit here and tell me it's a coaching issue, you, you're kind of, you know, urinating on me and tell me it's raining. So that's the point. The point isn't Stephen Ross is racist, right? The point is, when it came time to sacrifice someone who did a good job, he didn't, he didn't hesitate. And, and the belief there, combined with all the other things that happened within the NFL structure, is Brian Flores was expendable because he was black. And at this point, the Miami Dolphins dealing with their owners' suspension uh, into the first month of the season, um, vacation. Penalties. That ain't a suspension. You're scoffing, man. You're scoffing at that. That's, that ain't a suspension. I'm <laughs> suspending you until October. Ooh, yeah. wow. Ooh. Oh, and, I'll oh, never wow. tamper one again. His, one of his uh, partners, limited partners, gone for the year uh, because of the actual interaction uh, tampering with Tom Brady. Uh, it's an interesting pivot that'll have to be made once. Uh, uh, all of this adjudication has found its way and everybody's back in their regular spots and how they move forward. 
We have to do that very same thing. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll visit with Shamari Brown, brand new senior associate AD at Iowa State. I spent the last uh, decade plus with the ACC uh, working on compliance and, and student athlete initiatives. Uh, we'll talk about a big one uh, as student athletes were a part of last month when we come back here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. It is an absolute pleasure to have with us on the program, uh, Shamari Brown. Used to be with the ACC. We're going to talk about one of the great programs that uh, he saw fit for student athletes up and down the East Coast to be a part of this summer. But as you can see on his chest, the allegiance has changed. If you're just listening, I'll let you know. uh, This is the new Senior Associate Athletic Director at Iowa State. Uh, Shamari, first of all, thanks for taking the time. Uh, and, and let's now talk about the transition you're making. Uh, you spent over a decade with the ACC, uh, really uplifting uh, student athletes uh, really away from their competition, which is the majority of their life, uh, which is uh, magnificent. In the work that you're doing at Iowa State now, it feels like you're, talk- you're touching every aspect of the student athlete life. Exactly. And thank you for having me, Jason. Uh, really looking forward to this, this conversation. But no, you're, you're right. I mean, I spent the last 12 years of my career at the ACC, you know, working on behalf of the 15 member institutions to support and supplement the, the work from student athlete welfare and development aspect uh, with their student athletes. Um, but a few years ago, I made a decision that, you know, working in that student athlete development and 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 uh, wellness space that I wanted to be back on a campus, right, and have have that day to day interaction and affecting the student athletes' lives on a, on a regular and daily basis. Um, and so I had made it a goal to get back on a campus. Uh, but but to be fair and, and really honest, I a, a place like Iowa State was never on the list of kind of locations and and you know places where I could envision our family heading. Um, you know, but was fortunate and blessed with this opportunity um, as Charles Small left Iowa State to become an athletic director at Valparaiso uh, for, for them to reach out to me um, with, with interest about, about the position and to see if I had any interest and, in, you know, get plugged into the, the search process. And, um, and even then, Iowa State was still not a place that I was keen on. Um, for multiple reasons, right? One, just from a from a locale. I'm from North Carolina. I'm, I'm I'm a Southern boy at heart, right? And you talk about going to the Midwest. I just had no knowledge. Um, but then, you know, to, to also be honest, part of it was also, in my opinion, looking at just externally the lack of perceived diversity, right, a- amongst the staff. Um, to me, was an initial challenge. And, and so, you know, through having some conversations with uh, the athletic director Jamie Pollard there and some of the other staff members, it was it was really evident um, the commitment to their values and and you know just the baseline of understanding and supporting the student athlete once again, um, where I, I fell in love with with Iowa State and, and the people there. So on top of being a sport administrator, uh, overseeing diversity and inclusion, uh, at the top of the list of things that Iowa State talks about in your day in day out endeavor. Uh, really focuses in on student athlete health and wellness. Right. Health, you get. Athletes got to be well to compete at the highest level. How Over your decade plus of work in the wellness area, how has that grown in importance that everyone buys into from the executive level to the coaches yeah. 
in in these conferences and on these campuses? Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably one of the number one priorities when we talk about the health and wellness. And it's, I mean, it, it mirrors what we see um, culturally, right? The mental health piece is, is huge. Um, and there are a ton of mental health challenges that our young people are facing, right? From, from, for multiple reasons, right? I mean, social media and just the attention that, especially our athletes that's performing at, you know, at a high level on, on a big stage. Um, so mental health has always been a lead, but then we talk about just their, their, um, the, the health of their bodies and, and caring for that, for that. That's one thing that athletes kind of take for granted, especially, at, at a power five level, because we have doctors and sports medicine staffs and athletic trainers, you know, at you know, any time they have an injury, it's there, right? It's, it's concierge care. Um, but part of it is educating the student athlete about their health, educating them about how they can, you know, advocate for themselves. And, you know, for, for us, and, and really for me, the number one priority is helping our athletes effectively transition. Um, and so once athletes are finished playing, we're probably some of the worst when it comes to caring and being healthy outside of preparing for a game or a sport, right? And so part of that is just really equipping them and and kind of preparing them for how that transfers once they're finished playing the game, whenever that may be. Um, but but health and safety is, is number one priority. Probably one of the one of the biggest budget items that that we'll spend on is, is the health care for our athletes. Um, and so now. As you look at college athletics, it's very much uh, similar to a professional model with the level of care we provide, right? Everything from sports medicine to nutrition to strength conditioning to psychological services, right? Like it's, it's a lot that's invested into ensuring that our athletes are, are cared for from a health and safety standpoint. Shamari Brown with us from Iowa State, formerly of the ACC uh, conference office. Uh, we'll talk about some association with that in just a little bit. Uh, deeper into the wellness, the, the, the mental health of student athletes. There is far more awareness for, from the student athlete standpoint, from the parent standpoint, yes. about how mental health impacts uh, the student athlete across the board, from the work they're doing in the classroom to the work that they're doing uh, in their sport. How challenging has it been for particularly coaches? Well, I think we, we could nail down that space. <clears throat> to balance the push that is necessary yep. to compete and achieve at the highest level with being aware of how important mental health is. Sometimes those two things do not align. One of the biggest challenges, right? It, and it was one of the programs implemented uh, just a year ago at the ACC is what we call coaching the whole athlete. Because you have, a, you have coaches and their number one job is to push athletes, to push individuals beyond what that individual thinks he or she can can do by themselves, right? So there's an automatic push that they have to give, but the old school style of coaching is no longer accepted in today with today's athlete. And so, you know, now coaches have to understand how do I push without being, uh, without bullying, quote unquote, um, and how do I get the most of our, out of our athletes? And that's where the struggle comes, right? Like I, I have, we had an Olympic coach um, they were saying, hey, in order for me to get our athletes to perform at the level that they say they want to perform in, I have to do X, Y, and Z. And now they're telling me that we, I can't do that. I don't know how to coach any other way, mm. right? And so you talk about people who made their profession, made their lives around coaching one style and now having to adjust that because, you know, young people are 
in my opinion, at least, a little more sensitive to tone, tonality, and and approach than what we had to deal deal with. And maybe we we just dealt with you know stuff that was that was bad in, in that approach. But you know that's one of the main things, right? Is how do we educate our coaches? How do we help them understand you know warning signs and help them understand response um, for athletes that are having mental challenges? Um, but then also just really having relationships with their athletes beyond sport, because that's the other part of it is that now our, a lot of our athletes aren't just focused on their sport, but they have interests outside of sport. And we have to help our coaches to understand and, and connect with those interests that's away from sport. And that's really what's healthy, right? And giving our athletes an outlet that, that they, they can escape the, the stresses of, of the sport when they're trying to play at a, at a high level. I would imagine there are certain sports that can speak to that a little bit easier, right? The individual sports, um, oftentimes the Olympic sports, how hard is it to get that in your old sport in football? How hard? I mean, it just is such a different culture culture. and you can see the advancements in just the care of the player, right? I'm right now, I just started in on uh, hard knocks with the lions and we fall in love with these guys and these teams <clears throat> even after one episode, uh, you see the care and the transition and that particular staff has a lot of p- former players yep. uh, as coaches. And so it, it helps, but man, when you get to the competition, it, there's a reversion kind of back to the old way sometimes. Yeah. Because it's a gladiator sport, right? Yeah. And at the end of the day, you have to have that hunger, that drive, that what we call that dog in you mm-hmm. in which a softness is it acceptable on the field within that culture? And so having that, that line of demarcation is one of the hardest things for, for athletes and for coach, for anyone, you know, around sport. Um, but that's, that's the challenge, right? How, how do we separate the, the, the sport from the person, the athlete from, from, from the, the, the person, um, is, is the challenge. Right. And, uh, but, you know, a sport like football where, you know, you, you are, like I said, it's a gladiator sport. No one wants to come across as being weak, whether we're talking about mentally weak or physically weak. And people hide a lot of uh, challenges and issues that they're facing because of that perception of, of being weak. It is a challenging balance, to say the least, without a doubt. Talk to Shamari Brown from Iowa State, one of the new executives in their athletic department, transitioning over from a role he had for a dozen years in the ACC, uh, in uh, their programs and compliance area. Last month, we visited with some kids that were a part of an initiative that, that you helped spearhead uh, with PAC-10 and uh, Big 10, along with the ACC, uh, taking administrators and students uh, into a space you know <clears throat> very well about, the Deep South, and, and understanding uh, the origins of the challenges of Black people in America and how that resonated uh, from the, our, our arrival in the 1600s to uh, this moment right now. Walk, walk us through that experience and, and how changing it was for your student athletes. Man, it was a tremendous experience, right? And so we're, we're fortunate, thankful that the Big Ten, this actually began as kind of a Big Ten initiative where Commissioner Warren early in his tenure identified that he, they wanted to do this cultural tour. Um, and then once, you know, the ACC, Pac-12, Big Ten, we formalized the, the alliance. It became one of the um, 
programs, uh, initiatives that we all kind of jointly co combined with, right? And so as we're planning this, we know that it's going to be impactful. Like we knew it was going to be emotional and that type of thing. But I don't think any of us had the understanding or thought that it would be as impactful as it was for everybody that participated in it. Uh, and we were thinking from the student athlete standpoint that, you know, they didn't know, like it, 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 it would be, like I said before, emotional. And so we, we got there and we condensed a lot of activities into really one, one day, um, a day and a half. Right. And, and so part of the trip going to Selma, Alabama, uh, 1956, they had to march from Selma to Montgomery to fight for voting rights. And part of the group, and, and really this is what we told our athletes, movements are, are led by young people, right? And, and, and at that time, it was college-age uh, student, college right. students that were part of the leadership of, of, of this march. It, and, you know, the students in Alabama, and by the time they got to, to Montgomery, the capital of Alabama, it was students from all across the country that had flown in and that had driven, well, driven in into um, Alabama. And so part of the reason that that was selected is, all right, these are student athletes, college age students back then, put yourselves in, in, in their shoes, right? And a lot of the students that student athletes have participated are involved on campus in diversity and inclusion um, clubs and activities. And so through the, um, the experience, being able to hear directly from individuals that participated in the march, um, Cheyenne Webb Kreisberg was one of the youngest, I think the documented youngest person to participate, right, at nine years old. And she talks about being a young, a young girl and meeting Martin Luther King at, you know, Brown Baptist Church as he was as he was coming in and meeting some of the civil rights leader. And as a young girl, not knowing who he was, but then quickly developing a relationship with him. Um, and every time he coming in, came in, you know, just meeting with, with, with her and you know, and seeing that, right? So hearing that experience for her and what that was like. And then hearing from uh, Ms. Linda uh, Lowry, who was 15 at the time and got bashed in the head, you know, during that march, 15 year old young, young girl that just brutally beat. And she talked about the anger that she had from that point on all the way up until recently, you know, some uh, 10 years ago. Right, the anger that that exhibited for her towards towards white folks because of her being beaten, um, and so now our young people realize that it wasn't that long ago, and these people in their stories showed them um, and told them that it wasn't that long ago, right? And, and so the, the thing that stood out that our young people was, were saying, student athletes were saying, was it's feeling like a lot of these activities, a lot of a, a lot of this hate is repeating itself. It's, it's resembling a lot of what the people that went through it in the 50s and 60s said they went through. And now we're seeing it kind of raise up again, right? And, and so it was a combination of hearing first-person um, first encounters and experiences and visiting some of the civil rights sites. Um, and then finally hearing from Brian Stevenson, who closed us out. To, to, to speak right and before before he spoke to us we visited you know one of the museums that that the uh, equal justice um, initiative has right the legacy museum which was so powerful and so this all took place really between friday and saturday and there was a, a, a range of emotion 
right? You start out and you're excited because it's community. Everybody's, you know, coming together and having a good time. And then it gets real and you're hearing, you know, first person encounters and you kind of get sad. Um, and then you go through and see some of the sites and, 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 and hear about, you know, the killings and, and just the, the struggle and you get, you get upset, right. And, and, and blood is boiling, right. And, and you're crying and then you go through and you, you hear about the over, how they overcome, how they made the march and you get excited, you get motivated, you, you get happy. Right. And so literally everyone that went, that everyone that I spoke with had the same kind of range of emotions all over the place right. and just kind of emotionally draining because you just, the, the experience, man, we, I don't think we were prepared or thought that it would be as life-changing as it was um, for student athlete and administrator and the coaches that were there. Like it, it touched everyone similarly. Yeah. So happy to spend this time with Jamari Brown, Iowa state senior associate athletic director for student services we had a chance to visit with a student athlete from Rutgers and a student athlete from Nebraska right after that trip. And what really stood out to me in our conversations that the differing ways in which each student athlete anticipated taking this experience back to campus. Uh, the young lady who plays basketball at Rutgers fired up. I mean, you could feel it just jumping out of her skin just to discuss it with her teammates and other people probably in their student athlete uh, advisory council, and then figuring out what type of programming can happen on campus where the uh, track and field athlete from Nebraska was still really processing everything and didn't really have a plan just yet. And I found both ways to be while differing fine. What was the desire? What was the initiatives plan for these seeds that are planted now across America? It, it, it was that, right? So it was, the personal reflection mm-hmm. and, and, and really to challenge them, like I said, movements are led by young people. Mm-hmm. And these young people began the current movement back, you know, 2020, the summer of 2020. Um, and so part of it was how can we inspire you all to lead mm-hmm. and to do more, but understand it's easy in this setting, right? We've, we've curated this experience for you and you're around a group of like-minded individuals. It's easy to have the plans here and, and, and say what you're going to do here, but you have to go back to your campus, to your community, to the real world where you're going to face challenges. They're going to be walls. How motivated and inspired can you be from what we just heard and experienced over this weekend? And that's what it's really about, right? It's preparing them for the real world, understanding that, yes, I believe this, we believe this, but there are a lot of people in this world that don't think and don't believe the same things that you believe from a social justice and, and a civil rights aspect. Um, but hearing the stories, our, our hope was to motivate and inspire our young people to lead us to a whole nother level. Um, and so, you know, that's the goal and it's to be, to be seen what, what comes out of the experiences and action plans that, that comes out of that experience. Before we let you run, I really, really appreciate your time. I know one of your responsibilities in your diversity inclusion activities at Iowa State is you're also a Title IX coordinator. And as we celebrate the 50th year of Title IX being in place, uh, the challenge of maintaining all that was intended, I think is worthy of discussion, uh, particularly on campuses like yours, when you have 100 plus young men who toss out the balance simply because you have football. 
So trying to maintain that balance while not taking away programs has to be uh, just entirely challenging. It's it's definitely a challenge. And, you know, the the intent internally uh, within, and I'll say this for multiple athletic departments, is to provide equal opportunity. Absolutely. But once you look at the the, the funding and really the, the attention publicly, it's just, it's, it's, it's not there, right? And so it's our job as administrators, as professionals to ensure that we're providing equitable opportunities for, for our young women as, as we are for, for our men, right? And so for us at Iowa State, it means that we, we sponsor more women's sports than we do men's sports, right? To try to balance that off because yes, a football team throws it off completely. Um, you know, but Title IX is, is something where, um, you know, we pay attention to the, the, the opportunities, the sport opportunities, participation opportunities, but it's, that's a law that has a lot compacted into it. Um, you know, everything from, you know, sexual assault and, and awareness to, um, you know, like I said, how, how you provide those opportunities and, and, and scholarship allocation and, and everything. So um, right now, I think we're in a good spot at Iowa State as I come in, you know, week two. Um, but definitely still doing some learning and digging to ensure that we we stay in balance and and stay um, in compliance of, of the law. Jeremiah, we appreciate the time. Congratulations on the new gig. The real transition is going to come in a couple months. You ought to read back in your mind to your days at University of New Haven for the cold, for the, hard for the cold. winter, my man. We're prepared. I got to get this. I got to get a coat. I hadn't put on a real coat in probably ten years, so I got to prepare and find me something nice to wear. Listen, it only gets brisk in North Cackalack. <laughs> exactly. It doesn't get like this, man. Hey, we really appreciate you. We hope to visit with you again soon. Hey, thanks for having me. More to come here on Forward Progress. Stay right there. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Thanks for rolling with us all the way through here on Forward Progress. I mean, our last story here about the departure of Kale Gundy. Uh, from the Oklahoma football program landscape for the first time, really, in his adult life. I mean, I think there was one other gig in here after uh, his playing days at Oklahoma. Uh, as And the longest-tenured coach in the Big 12, uh, always as uh, a accent to someone's program, but really one of the nation's great recruiters and um, and, and – clearly really good as a position coach and, and just uplifting sooner football for anybody's recent memory. And he's out the door for uttering a word. This is his quote, a word that I should never under any circumstance have uttered uh, when reprimanding a student athlete for seeing what was going on on the screen of the player's iPad during a film session last week. So paint this picture, you're in film session, you find mm-hmm. one of your players isn't paying attention, you're trying to see what is on the iPad. You're like, what, what's more important than what we're working on right now? This, mm-hmm. read the lyrics. I can only assume the, the N-word bomb is in those lyrics and it comes right. out his mouth and off he goes, right? Right. So I, I'm, I'm constantly challenged and, and, and I fluctuate, I'm going to tell you this right now, right. Um, about the standard public discourse that includes the N-word. Mm-hmm. 
I hear the argument about empowerment and control of the word, uh, but I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And, and in private company, I probably have uttered it way too often. Mm-hmm. But there is just kind of this line that we've all kind of tongue in cheek or not noted. We can say it, you can't. And I've tried mm-hmm. to evolve above that. I struggle in doing that. Um, I challenge my sons all the time and including the woman mm-hmm. I have been with for my entire adult life who loves gangster rap and had our children in the car as infants going hard. Uh, and it's like, <laughs> is that, we couldn't put on some love songs. We couldn't put on some, some, some old R and B where there was a little bit of a nuance <laughs> to what is being, uh, displayed in, in, in love. Uh, but that, that's, I'm not going to be the one that puts that particular horse back in the barn. And there is two ways on this, right? Zero tolerance. Kale, you said it. That's the end of that. And then there's a nuanced layer of it of, man, it, it just fluctuates through the culture in a way that drives us nuts. If we hear it out of one orifice versus another, I remember you know, I used to run a AAU team and I had a litany of shocking Hispanic players on my team living in South Florida. And the N word moves freely in that community. Right. In a right. way that I could not tolerate at a pizza dinner in public with cats right. wearing jerseys or polos with my name on them. So right. they were admonished in front of their parents. Mm-hmm. By me. But then I'm saying, and now I've got to hold myself to a consistent standard of not being slick with that usage either. Well, I think, I think as ever, as with everything, it, it, there's very nuanced in this. So, Jax, let me assume your entire AU team was of African-American descent. Oh, versus what it was, yes. Versus what it was, versus yeah. the, the the menagerie of, yeah. of diversity it was, South right? Florida diversity, exactly. Right. Would you have been tolerant of their use it, at a pizza parlor? No. Which, right. Right. So, number one is, the, there's, the, number one is obviously who's saying it, but number two, very closely, is what's the context, right? Right. You, in your youth, right, listening to this music with your yep. children in the car, Words flying on you before you had pangs of guilt about it. Right. You, you rolled up to your mom's house. Or if your mom was in the car, would that music be playing? No. Station would change. Okay, so yeah. so we know that some people can say it in general and some people can't. And then we also know that even the people who can say it, you can't say it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, this comes from you growing up in a culture of it and around it you understand the nuance you understand time and place in a way that some children may not right particularly yep. if they're not growing up in a household or or in a in a, in a community where these things are impressed upon them and you the the context right so fast forward to kill gundy he works in sports. You've noted he's the longest tenured coach in the Big 12. 
right? Yep. You noted that he had like one job after graduating college and since then has been at Oklahoma. Right. He, by the way, he's a quarterback at Oklahoma. Right. Right. So Oklahoma D1 powerhouse. Right. Safe to say that even though Oklahoma as a state may not or Norman Oklahoma may not be a huge melting pot of diversity. Being someone who played on the team and has worked in sports, he's probably got a little bit more access and exposure to black people than your standard Oklahoman or your standard Norman Oklahoma resident. Is that is that a fair assessment? Assumption? Entirely. Entirely. Okay. And he's 50 years old. So he ain't 15 like the kids on your AU team. <laughs> right. Right. You know better. You know what you can and can't say. When I first read the story, he said, oh, I was just reading what were those, I didn't realize what I was saying. And I thought there was one in there. And I said, you know what? You get older, you start to let things slip. You know, your mental acuity ain't there. But then I read the next story and it said, no, no, it was mentioned several times. And you mentioned every last one of them. There's a part where he's like, ah, whoa, my, my bad guys. When you hear it <laughs> some, come out your mouth, some, like, oh. Yeah, air brakes come in, right? There's got to be. And so, yeah, man, like, I'm not here for zero tolerance. I'm not here to legislate people over tweets that they did 30 years ago, whatever, or, or you know. But there is a level of, you got to have common sense, bro. That, that wasn't you saying it because you didn't realize what you were saying. That was you saying it because you felt comfortable to say it. And you should have known better, given your age and who you deal with, interact with for the last 25, 30 years of your life. Joe Mixon, running back. Here's what he had to say. Coach Gundy, it's not, and I repeat, it's not a racist in any way, nor has a racist bone in his body, mind, or soul. I know racist. I have witnessed both obvious and discrete types of racism and have known and detested even more actual racists. Coach Gundy is the furthest thing from this type of person. I'm always willing to separate and act from a way that you live your life, right? It was what we were kind of talking about a little bit earlier. It's challenging to get into what someone is versus what's not acceptable in a single moment. And it it was decided that that was not acceptable for that football program. Uh, He was allowed to resign. I, I can appreciate Joe's personal experience with Coach Gundy, which probably is the preponderance of, of his existence. But mm-hmm. this particular moment um, led to his demise in that space. Uh, unfortunately, we have hit the end of the show. So we have to hit air brakes on this discussion. But um, as it is, oftentimes, why we have this hour each week is because these things are not easy to just simply throw down and get through with it. I mean, thank you for sitting in. I hope you are with us next week. I know there's an opening for you to do so, my friend. Special thanks. My fingers always crossed. <laughs> our special thanks to Shamari Brown for stopping by from Iowa State. Uh, and we always appreciate our producer, Pernell Brown, who puts it all together. For me, I'm Jax. We'll talk to you next time on Forward Progress. Forward Progress is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.